Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Jennifer Kramer is a linguist at the University of Kentucky. She's uh, an assistant professor, director of undergraduate studies, and co-director of Linguistics Incubator for Collaboration Digital Research, was a big, long name with an, <laughs> an acronym that we'll, uh, we'll explain in just a few minutes. We well, call it LINKED. <laughs> LINKED. Okay, that's, that's a lot easier. Why language? Why linguistics? Well, uh, my joke is always that uh, when I was a kid, I, uh, I have kind of long fingers and people said, oh, you should play the piano. And I, I was always kind of tall and say, oh, you should play basketball. And once I learned what linguistics was, I, I joke that, well, if they knew what linguistics was, they would say, you talk an awful lot. You should be a linguist. Uh, of course, that's not exactly what linguistics is, but I've always been fascinated by language. And uh, I was actually an undergraduate student at UK myself and uh, started out as a math major always have had an interest in sort of the systematic way in which we approach math problems and uh, was also taking some French and every day I came home complaining about calculus and raving about French. Uh, my roommate says, why is that your major? So I switched to French and I love French still, uh, but I found that, that I still wanted some more of that uh, problem solving and, and you don't get as much of that, uh, at least I didn't get as much of that from, from my language classes and someone said, you should take linguistics what's that? And that's almost everyone's reaction to what is linguistics. But uh, I took a linguistics class and, and I fell in love because that was where my math brain and my language brain came together. Um, and ever since then, I just haven't looked back. <laughs> so it wasn't that you grew up as a, um, a young uh, woman thinking that it's either law school, medical school, or I'm going to be a uh, linguistics professor. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, I'm a first-generation college student, so uh, what I was going to do when I got here was um, sort of unclear. Uh, and I, I thought I would be a—I actually thought I was going to be a high school teacher is what I, what I thought I was going to do. So I, I still do some teaching. That's, uh, that's definitely part of what I do. But uh, I thought I was going to be a high school math teacher, then maybe a high school French teacher. Uh, and, and when I dove into linguistics, I wasn't really sure what that, where that was going to take me, but um, I'm, I'm lucky where I ended up. So what do you do? Tell me about your uh, course of study, first of all, and um, wh how that has led you to your, your, your professional um, and, and the work that we're going to talk about today. Sure. I, um, you know, I, I said I, I did my degree. Actually, I, I finished double degree in French and linguistics here uh, in 2004. And then I went to Purdue University. Uh, my husband, actually, I, I married just after undergrad, and uh, my husband was already there pursuing his PhD in electrical engineering. So I followed, and uh, I did some linguistics there. Uh, I, I had one track in mind when I got there, and I met uh, a lovely woman named Margie Burns who worked on um, the use of English across the world, how we call it world English is basically the idea that it's not just Britain and America that have English going on, but that English is developing in these really interesting ways in, in other places. And so I started working with her uh, in more of what we call sociolinguistics, basically the idea of how language and society impact each other. Uh, she had done her PhD at the University of Illinois and suggested that to me as a possible place to pursue a PhD. 
So I did. Uh, that also happens to be the place where world Englishes as an area of study kind of got its start. So I thought I was going to continue working in that uh, vein. Uh, I met Rakesh Bhatt, who was my ultimately my PhD advisor. And the, the thing he said to me that, that stuck with me was, um, you have to do what you love. So something you are fascinated by, something you are interested in, because otherwise the project's never going to get done. And one of the things I had told him a few times was that, you know, I'm being from Louisville, uh, we're in that sort of weird ground between How Southern and North. How did you say that again now? <laughs> Louisville. Uh, uh, Louisville. I say Louisville. Uh, in fact, uh, when I first went to Purdue, I, uh, I started saying Louisville to people because they didn't understand me. And I felt, I felt really kind of like an imposter uh, saying Louisville. That's not how I pronounce it. Uh, and when I ultimately started studying Louisville, uh, when I'd go to conferences, I, I decided to go back and say, no, I'm going to say Louisville. And if someone doesn't understand me, they can read it on the slide behind me. Um, but that was the thing that happened at, at Illinois is I, I met my professor and he just said, do what you love. And talked about this idea of being from Louisville and being torn, being Southern or not being Southern. I always thought I was Southern. Um, and if you talk to people from Louisville, some of them say, yes, absolutely. And some of them say, no, not at all. Uh, and if you talk to people from uh, outside of Kentucky, you get a really interesting picture, too. I can remember this very clear uh, meeting with a, with a group. One guy was from Tennessee and a, and a lady was from New York. And uh, the, the guy said, oh, she's not Southern. And the, the New Yorker said, oh, yes, she is. I was like, they're, they're, they're fighting over me where I, where I belong. And that's ultimately where my research took me was, you know, where does Louisville belong? Is it Southern or not, linguistically speaking? Your story is similar to the one that, Silas House tells, uh, the Kentucky author, and he told me this one time, and I think he's used this um, in his presentations too, that for a long time in his youth and in his uh, early college days, he fought so hard to lose his Appalachian accent. He was embarrassed by it. He worked hard at not pronouncing the words that he did, that the, the flat, nasal, uh, Appalachian, Eastern Kentucky language mm -hmm. that I think is beautiful and, and Me too. Um, melodic. Um, and then he finally, either somebody gave him advice, or I think he maybe just decided, I'm not going to try to lose this. I'll, I'll never lose it. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to uh, really fall in love with my language once again and my accent. And so you feel somewhat like that from uh, Louisville or Louisville uh, and and now deciding that you're going to pronounce it the way you grew up that's right it. that's right and that's a common experience especially for for Appalachians uh, but but other southerners and other speakers of uh, stigmatized varieties where they just feel like they've been picked on for so long for sounding the way they sound that they really ought to fix it and that that's their wording and, and you know of course I, I never say that and in my classes I always tell students that uh, um, you know don't don't try to lose your accents because if you do I'm out of a job um, <laughs> but uh, but but in all seriousness I think what Silas probably encountered was that moment when he realized that how he talks is part of who he is. And that's something that sociolinguistics spends a lot of time talking about, this notion of language and identity, how we identify and how we 
how the way we speak contributes to how people perceive us uh, for good or for bad. And um, I would guess that Silas's experience was the same as he had been picked on for speaking in a certain way, but ultimately he realized that his language meant home, meant family, and, and was really a strong part of who he was and, and who he is. So that's, that's the, a common experience for, for people like that. Um, and that's exactly why I study what I study. Your advice to younger people uh, that might be listening to this uh, that live in a, a part of the state where they have an accent is to what? <laughs> that's, a, that's a tricky question because, um, you know, the world is not run by linguists who all love dialects and accents, and it's run by people who uh, will hear a dialect and say, oh, that person's from this place, they must be, and fill in the blank with many sort of um, negative, sometimes positive, but mostly negative stereotypes of, of people from that place. Uh, unfortunately for many of them, the, the, the stereotype that comes along with it is, is dumb or inept or incapable. And um, the, the workforce doesn't really uh, work very well if you think that your whole workforce is inept. So uh, I always have to tell my students, and, and, and Kentucky students always recognize this as a, as a reality, is there's a balancing act. Uh, society expects something more along whatever standard English is, and that when you're doing your public life, sometimes you have to do that. Um, but that to lose that accent altogether, that there's never a place where you can just be you, um, I think that's unfortunate. Uh, so I, I always encourage my students to, to try to maintain that home dialect, to, to use it when they can. And, and sometimes you can't even help it. I mean, the, the people who try to lose their accents, I always tell them that uh, uh, get very emotional, have a few drinks, that's going to bring them back. Your uh, your vowels actually will always deceive you. They'll always they'll always tell where you're from. So that uh, even the efforts at getting rid of accents are often uh, fruitless. So you're one of those who um, uh, we might meet at a party or a social occasion, and you're the one in the back of your mind trying to guess uh, either which state this person's <laughs> from or which region of the country or maybe even in Kentucky, for example, what county you're from. Uh, <laughs> I'm not that, that good. I'm not that good. We joke that that's our party trick. Uh, we can we can sometimes do pretty good with that. But, I mean, it's not even necessarily true that uh, sounding a certain way uh, has to mean you're from a place. Um, there are people, for example, uh, during the, the Great Migration, there were lots of people from Appalachia who moved north. We know there are large pockets of people with Appalachian ancestry in um, the the big cities in Ohio and, of course, Detroit and Michigan. And in those places, they can maintain sort of a, a coherence if there's enough of them. And so you might find these people and they say, you know, they're from, they're from Ypsilanti, uh, but, but they carry with them that, that Appalachian accent. And so, um, you know, that where, they're, where they live or where they're from sometimes uh, won't always line up. But it is something I have been able to, uh, to mystify people uh, occasionally with guessing where they're from. <laughs> So in your, um, in your biography, uh, your research interests are in the field of, and you mentioned it already, uh, sociolinguistics. And then uh, also, uh, back to Louisville, uh, the linguistic pr uh, production and perception of regional identity in Louisville. And I would bet that maybe even Louisvillians don't recognize that they have a regional identity. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so with regional identity, this is, this is uh, boils down to these larger 
national societal ideas of, oh, there's a Midwestern and there's a Southern uh, cultural group. Uh, and, and so you just ask them, you know, you know where, where is Louisville? Where does it belong? And if you had asked me this before I had done any of this research, I absolutely would have said, oh, yeah, we're in the South, no problem. Uh, but, you know, that's not how everyone sees it. So uh, I, I joke that I started out with looking at a phone book and you could, you know, almost go there and find, you know, Midwest Moving Company and Southern Moving Company. And you find these little, little, little elements of this mixture going on of, are we Southern or are we not? Uh, Derby Day is a big day when we're definitely Southern in Louisville. Um, you know, big hats and fancy drinks and, and, and everything. So that's our big Southern day. But there are other ways in which Southernness gets expressed there and other ways that it doesn't. So when you ask people, uh, they'll, if you just ask a couple of Louisvillians, you're likely to get one to say Southern and one to say Midwestern, and they'll fight it out. <laughs> uh, and so that's what I mean by the, the perception. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just ask you where you think you're, are you Southern or not? But also the other part of the perception is I often give people a, a map of some region of the United States. This is called perceptual dialectology. You, you give them a map and you say, tell me where people have a certain way of talking. And they'll draw. Uh, they often use more derogatory labels than we would. So they'll circle an area and call it Hick and another one and call it Hillbilly. Um, but I wanted to see, do they, do they draw a Southern region? Almost everyone in the U.S. will draw a Southern region no matter what. And if they do draw a southern region, do they put Louisville in it or not? And it ends up being that sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So that notion of, of, of regional identity is very fluid in Louisville. It's very uh, much a transition zone. And I think that's probably evident from its history as well. If you think about Louisville's position on the Ohio River, it's really located at this very nice marker historically between the south and the not south. Uh, there used to be a sign there uh, across the bridge that's, uh, that said it was the General Electric and it said, Welcome to the South. Uh, it's no longer there, <laughs> which might be a changing of the times, but the idea was that the Ohio River and those bridges into Louisville served as the gateway to the South. Um, and, and so much more historically, we could talk about the Civil War. You could talk about Lincoln being the president and, you know, that, that the Civil War, uh, that the, the Union and the Confederacy, both presidents were from Kentucky and, and what that means about the state as a whole, feeling like it's torn. Uh, and a lot of that gets represented in how Louisvillians, even today, still talk about where they belong. So on average, if you're talking to, to Louisvillians, do they, if they say they're not Southern, do they... the do they offer up um, a Midwesterner? They'll typically say Midwestern, yeah. Mm. If they if they want to give it a place, that's the name that uh, they'll often come up with. Though though some uh, grapple with the term Midwestern, they're like, this isn't Western uh, at all. There's so much more there. Uh, and I, I think that's, it's, again, a historical artifact of where that word came from. But So the distance between Louisville and Cincinnati, uh, only a short distance mm-hmm. uh, as the crow flies, uh, is Cincinnati northern? Um, I, I don't know what Cincinnatians would say. I think that the, um, the Cincinnati folks uh, sometimes will call themselves Midwestern also. So um, Ohio is really fascinating uh, linguistically even because um, you can kind of cut it into three parts where the southernmost portion of the state, including Cincinnati, is a lot more like the south and Appalachia. Uh, than the middle portion, which is more, we call it Midlands instead of Midwestern in, in dialect terms, we call it the Midlands. And then the very Northern band where you have, you know, Cleveland gets lumped up with the North. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't know what, I haven't done any research with Cincinnati folks. I'd love to because um, 
you have this really nice um, border scenario going on in Louisville that's uh, mirrored in Cincinnati. So you have the, in Kentucky, you have the big city and then the Southern Indiana, smaller cities. Uh, the those Southern Indiana people are like, no, Kentucky's the South. We're not. <laughs> um, and Louisvillians are almost like, we don't want to be Indiana, but we don't want to be Kentucky either. Can we just be our own little island? Um, whereas, Secede uh, from the statehood. Right. Whereas in Cincinnati, you get the flip. Uh, so the, the big cities actually on the Ohio side of the river. So they're, okay, no, they're not, we're not Kentucky. And those Kentuckians, and if you've met people from Northern Kentucky, uh, if you don't tell them you're from Kentucky, one of the first things they'll tell you is they're from Cincinnati, the Cincinnati oh, area. Yeah. Sure. And then when they figure out you're from Kentucky, they're like, oh, I'm actually from Northern Kentucky. <laughs> um, but, but that idea that they're sort of grappling to to, to pull up towards Ohio, um, yeah. uh, that's I, I imagine that's that's the kind of you'd get a kind of a flip of what I got in Louisville. How many dialects, uh, or, or or how do you uh, divide up uh, the number of dialects in Appalachia? Well, so that's a that's a really interesting question because historically there are these myths about Appalachia that it's just this one giant monolithic thing. Um, if you look at the Appalachian Regional Commission's definition of, of Appalachia, which, of course, is not the only definition, uh, it says it stretches all the way from New York to Mississippi. So that's kind of a large swath of land to all be the same. And I imagine if you met someone from Mississippi and someone from New York, you'd be unlikely to assume them to be the, sa the same. Uh, but the, the general conception of Appalachia sort of centers on eastern Kentucky, east Tennessee, west Virginia, Western Virginia, that, that kind of area, uh, which we call Central Appalachia. And when people talk about it or when they have stereotypes about it, it's often about that area. Um, but, but likely you could probably break Appalachia down into to more. And regionally, we talk about a Northern Appalachia, a Central Appalachia, and a Southern Appalachia. And I don't know if anyone's done any research that actually shows that those are linguistically different um, dialects, but uh, there's so much variation in Appalachia, and that's something that uh, really needs to be captured more. The other area that, uh, in fact, I want you to tell me about the languages of global hip-hop. So <laughs> let's let's move from Appalachia to hip-hop, although it doesn't mean that there's not hip-hop in Appalachia. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't done any of that research yet, but yeah. that would be great. <laughs> but but this book uh, that you contributed to? Yes. And uh, so tell me about it and and uh, the origins of, of hip-hop for... And I'm just going to say uh, this is probably a, a gross, uh, false generality that it started in uh, the big cities. It started in New York and L.A. and, and Detroit and wherever. It didn't start in Kentucky, although it <laughs> might have. I don't know. You might prove me wrong no, about no, that. No, so. no, it didn't. Um, it definitely has more roots in, in New York, uh, and, and the book covers some of that. Uh, the book is actually, it's a really interesting book that uh, was edited by Marina Terkarafi, and uh, she was one of my professors. Uh, the idea for it came out of a, a class. Uh, we were actually preparing for a conference, the Sociolinguistic Symposium, which is held every other year, uh, typically in Europe, though it's, it's expanding now. And we had a panel on, on global hip-hop. Basically, hip-hop is a genre that has its, its roots in, in the U.S., uh, certainly with influence from the Caribbean and, and, and other places. But it's, it grew out of a, a tradition here uh, among African Americans here, and it has been taken up globally as a as a form of resistance talk as a form of of fighting against establishment and and, and other forms of of resistance and in countries and 
cultures across the globe have adopted it, um, sometimes in English, sometimes borrowing from English, but definitely more commonly in what's covered in this book is what's happening in the local indigenous languages when they do hip hop in it. Um, and, and the book covers a wide swath of the world. I don't remember exactly what all is entailed there. Uh, mine was actually about regional hip hop in, in the U.S. And so we have, um, you know, there's in the 90s, I'm going to date myself here a little bit. In the 90s and early 2000s, we had this sort of uh, East Coast, West Coast kind of thing going on in American hip hop where you had uh, rappers and hip hop artists from New York and rappers and hip hop artists from California, and they had very different styles. Um, and and the music industry was looking for ways to, to market outside of those two coasts. And they found a really a, a hotbed of, of hip hop going on in Atlanta. And they said, this is, this is something new. This is something different. And, and so it's often referred to as the Dirty South, uh, this, this third coast uh, hip hop, where you get a, a very different sound. So Southern hip hop has a very certain um, distinctive sound uh, in that time period represented by artists popularly like Outkast or, or Ludacris. And so those are some of the subjects of it. We looked at people who very strongly claimed to be Southern hip hop artists and, and compared them to people who claimed to be from Midwestern places. Uh, at the time, we were looking at people like Nelly, who was from St. Louis, uh, uh, Common from Chicago, and, and some others, and looked to see how they expressed that notion of where they're from. And the Southern hip hop artists do a lot more of representing their place in this bigger way. So lots more references to specific places, uh, small towns and neighborhoods, uh, references to more cultural items. So one of the groups we actually looked at is uh, Nappy Roots, who is a Kentucky uh, hip hop group. Bowling Green. Yes, one of, one of my favorites actually. Mm -hmm. And they have lots of references to what we would think of as more um, country living. So references to farms and farm life and, and things of that nature. But of course we, they had some, um, I think one of their members was from Louisville, and so they had some Louisville representation there. Uh, but also uh, how that compared to the ones in the Midwest who who did more big, big scale things. So big cities would be mentioned, uh, but you definitely didn't get the same kind of cultural references that you would get in the South. So there was no no cornfields, <laughs> no whatever Midwestern cultural things are. Uh, and, and there didn't seem to be a coherence of what, there was no Midwestern hip hop, as it were. There were just these individuals who happened to be from Midwestern places. Does hip hop have the the legs the strength uh, the, to survive uh, in this uh, in the media world today uh, I think it's not going anywhere I think that um, it's plateaued no I th no I, I mean I don't think it's going away oh. I think it's I think it's it's gonna keep keep going and keep why do you think that um well it's always been this it's always been changing with the times. It's always kept up. Uh, and if you look at the history of hip hop in the U.S., you know, it, it definitely has its roots in, in the struggle of the experiences of, of African Americans. Uh, and it, it's shifted through different styles and different movements of how we talk about our world. And so, um, you know, it, I think it exists even in just the U.S. as this form of always changing, always keeping up with the times way of expression and then beyond the u.s the fact that it more than any other genre maybe rock music aside uh it more than any other genre of music has really taken flight in these places especially among um underprivileged people in these other cultures uh is as this form of, of resistance talk i think that because of that 
it kind of has that staying power. There will always be these situations where someone feels uh, disenfranchised, uh, put out. And if hip hop serves as the, the voice of that, um, I don't think it's going anywhere. Dr. Kramer is a, a new a member of our Speakers Bureau from Kentucky Humanities, and we're very proud to uh, welcome her on board, uh, available to uh, speak about uh, language and linguistics uh, all over America, mm-hmm. all over the state of Kentucky, and she's uh, anxious to do that, I'm sure. So why is linguistics humanities? Ah, this is a really interesting question. Um, because if you ask any given linguist, this is kind of like the Louisville question. If you ask a linguist, are you a humanist or a social scientist? Um, about 50-50. I don't know if it's 50-50, but you'll, you'll sometimes get different answers from different people. Um, I think that it has to be a, a considered both because we do deal with language, which is a quintessential part of humanness and and I think that aspect of us makes us clearly humanists. But many of us approach it from a way very different than um, the other humanities. So, of course, language comes up when you talk about history and language comes up when you talk about, um, you know, literature. But when, when we approach language from this more uh, problem-solving kind of way, you know, who does this and why, there are definitely numbers thrown in and the methods that we use are going to look more like those in psychology or sociology, which are definitely more of the social science things. So... So linguistics is, is humanity, certainly, it's, but it's got the other, the other bit going. And, and linguistics as a field has always been interdisciplinary in this way. Um, and, and we benefit, our understanding of language and how it works benefits from these many varied approaches to, to understanding uh, the human experience. So um, I think linguistics is, is clearly humanities, but clearly something else, too. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.